Shalom, shalom. You're listening to Live Internet Studies. This is episode number 244 for this brand new year, 2024. My name is Arabin Lyman Hanavi. Let's open with a word of prayer. Avino Malkano, our Father, our King. Thank you for a brand new year, and thank you for bringing us safely into a brand new year. Uh, a, a fresh new start for us to make a fresh new commitment uh, to you as our God, as our Lord, as our King, as our Savior, as our Messiah. Thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to share these uh, thoughts with one another as we dialogue with one another and pray with one another and reach out across the miles Um Thank you for the uh, topics that you have laid on my heart as a Bible teacher and as a Torah teacher. I pray that you'll um, allow me to to um, understand the, the the scope of your faithfulness when it comes to um, this uh, uh, task of sharing these uh, teachings with other people around the world. I, I count it a privilege to be able to have people who reach out to me through email and through my YouTube channel and through my podcasts and to dialogue and interact with me and to share their thoughts. Lord, I don't have all the answers, and so I lean on you, and I thank you for your mercy and your grace. Continue to raise us up and to give us an awareness and a sense of the urgency of the matter, of the hour, and of the um, commission that we've been given as believers to take this good news around the world and to share it with those as we go, as we are going on our journeys to share this gospel truth um, for with people who so desperately need to hear. And uh, just continue to help us to be humble with one another, um, forgiving one another, and sharing and extending messianic sympathy with one another as brothers and sisters in the Lord. We'll be careful, Lord, to give the praise and the glory of shame Yeshua. Amen. Thank you for joining me during these live internet studies. It's an hour and a half long study. My name is Arubin Lyman Hanavi. This is um, a brand new year, January 2024. Nice to have all of you who join me Um week after week, month after month, and now I can say year after year. We've crossed over into a brand new year, and I'm excited about the studies that we've been working on. In the hour and a half long uh, time frame that I've given over to these studies, this live internet uh, platform, uh, the first one hour is given over to this topic of eschatology, a biblical study of end-time events, where we are looking at... Um, Basically, we're working our way towards the book of Revelation. If you can see on your screen right now, I've got this topical index parked out in front of you. There's 18 topics right now, and we're in the yellow part where it says Topic 9, Yeshua's Olivet Discourse Part 2. And we're finishing up this look at Matthew chapter 24. I'm um, really basically at the point where I'm almost ready to just um, draw it to a close and jump right into the next three topics, which are the rapture views. In the 30-minute study that follows right after this hour-long study, we're dealing with the topic of um, a Trinitarian response to biblical Unitarianism, where we are challenging one another as Christians, as believers, and yet we've got differing perspectives on God as one, God as three, is he triune, is he one, numerically one, like the non-Trinitarians teach. And we've been specifically looking at Proverbs 8.23, where the writer talks about wisdom. Is this Jesus? Is this just personification? And it's not Jesus, and we're looking at those um, different um, details. So, I hope you can join us. Stay tuned for the, the entire hour-long, hour-and-a-half-long show. So let's jump into Matthew 
24s, all of discourse, and continue working our way down through this material. We are in a place where we're ready to start looking at this um, section where Yeshua is telling his disciples about his second coming and the conditions on planet Earth when the time comes for him to return. Of course, he's given us enough details for us to understand that there are going to be a good number of um, challenges that face everyone on planet Earth, whether you're a believer or an unbeliever, and you need to make a choice. When Yeshua comes and when Yeshua returns, if you're waiting for him to return to make your choice as to whether or not he's Lord, well, then you're, you've, you've waited too long because the condition on earth is going to be such that it will be very difficult, as I understand it, to, with a, uh, with a, with a, a sense of, um, uh, with with a with a sound mind to make a, a a proper decision because the stakes are so high as we get closer and closer to Yeshua returning that we've got both good and evil right light and darkness both kind of maturing and coming to a point we've got um, Satan who's going to be cast down to planet Earth at some point and he's going to be on a rampage and pouring out his wrath against. Jews and against Christians and against anyone who doesn't yield to him, take his mark and and recognize that his puppet is God or what he is going to be claiming to be God, right? Antichrist. And yet at the same time, God is also going to be sending a strong delusion on those who would not, who those who have refused to believe the truth when they had the chance, right? Read Second Thessalonians, and so are the books of uh, that Paul wrote to the Thessalonians. So. The, the, just like the Bible says in other places, the day of salvation is now. Make your decision now while it is, uh, while, the, while the, the Holy Spirit is making these truths available to us and uh, your life isn't in danger per se if you make a decision for Yeshua. Uh, you know, there's, there's coming a day when if you name the name of Yeshua, it's, you might just lose your head very, very easily, very quickly. <clears throat> So let's look at this study and look at the conditions that Yeshua describes that planet Earth will be like during the times when he's going to make his second approach. So picking up our reading in Matthew 24, starting in verse 36, we're going to read all the way down through verse 41. And then we'll look at the notes that Pastor David Guzik has left for us. And um, I'm going to try and, like I said, accelerate through some of this. Uh, maybe I didn't tell you that earlier that I wanted to accelerate. It's because as we get further and further down into Matthew 24, we're finding that essentially the parables are very self-explanatory, the uh, stories that he's giving right now. And there's very little need for me to try and confuse everyone by adding more detail. In other words, sometimes the Bible speaks best for itself. So let's read this. These are our Lord's words. He says, but about that day and hour, no one knows. We've already, let me back up for a second and stop. We've already heard the multitudes of teachings, either from a pastor or from a Bible teacher or study that we've attended or reading our own own commentaries on this subject, that when Yeshua comes, no one's going to know the day or the hour, so why even have a discussion on eschatology? And there's a measure of truth to that, Right. We shouldn't be trying to date set, is the point I'm, I'm saying, because Yeshua says no one knows the day or the hour, and if I finish the verse, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. That's verse 36. So 
taking it face value, nobody knows except God the Father, which that means, at least at the time when Yeshua said those words, when he was here on earth, he himself also didn't know. Whether or not he knows now, now that he's seated at the right hand of the Father, I can't say for certain that he doesn't know. There's nothing in, in the Bible that I've found that, that would um, prevent him from having gained that information after he sat down next to his papa. But taking at face value, he doesn't know. So why should I try to pretend that I would know the exact day of the hour? And yet, what we're going to find is that when we're talking about Yeshua's second coming, and I'm working towards this theme, so just bear with me. I'm not going to unveil, unpack all of it now, because it's going to really um, be covered more in the next topics where we're talking specifically about the rapture. But I want to give you at least a bit of a teaser. When we're talking about the return of Yeshua, we're talking about, on the whole, one event. One parousia in the Greek, one coming, one arrival, one second coming, one return. And yet, we're going to find out that there are parts to this return or aspects or pieces or itinerary um, destinations that are multiple. There are, in other words, there is one return. I don't believe there are two returns. And yet, at the same time, there's an aspect of his return that's been um, uh, given to us in the Bible that is unknowable, like what we just read here. And yet, at the same time, and you have to remember that this is all drawn from a lot of the passages in Daniel where time, time, time frames were actually given. And we're going to see this a little later on tonight. That there were numbers given to Daniel as far as years and months and days that correspond with the advent, not just of Yeshua, but the bringing in of the kingdom. So that we could almost say that we can know the day when certain things will happen. So, in fact, I'm of the opinion that, of the understanding, that if we want to put our finger on the rapture, then yes, we can't know the day or the hour. But if we're talking about when Yeshua returns to defeat Antichrist and set up his kingdom, if we understand Daniel correctly, then yes, we can know the day. I don't know if we can know the hour, but we can definitely know the day, because days are actually given. So, And it's not just in Daniel that they're given. We find, when Yeshua finally gives this revelation to John in the book of Revelation, he repeats the same time frames. And we'll talk about this. Like I said, I'm just tipping my hand a little bit towards you right now so you can see. When I say tip my hand, I'm, I'm using like um, um, blackjack terminology, right? So let's keep reading what Yeshua has to say here. And also understand that Yeshua is dividing all of humanity into two parts when he begins to give these words to his disciples. And this is going to give the foundation for Paul's writing in the book of Thessalonians, as well as we've got Peter, who's going to also echo the same words of our master, where he uses both of them, Paul and Peter, use these uh, terminology of the thief in the night analogy, where Yeshua's return is likened to a thief in the night to planet Earth. And yet Yeshua's going to tell us that there are two people groups that are going to witness his return. There are the believers and the unbelievers. And depending on which people group you fall into, the thief in the night analogy has an application for you. So, on the one hand, who is it that he's, that he's addressing when he says no one can know the day or the hour? Is it all of humanity? In some sense, yes. But as we begin to read what he describes with Noah, and we go back and read Noah, 
right? No, chapter, uh, Genesis chapter 6, chapter 7, and chapter 8, then you're going to find that in that story, as things progress closer and closer to the floodwaters actually uh, beginning with the rain starting and the ark being shut and such, God actually gives Noah a lot of detail, even to the point where he tells him the day when the waters are going to commence. So, am I saying that we should know the day when the rapture happens? No, I'm not saying we shouldn't. We should know the day when the rapture happens. But there are aspects about his second coming where we've got rapture on one bookend and second coming where he establishes his kingdom on the other end, and we'll see this later on as well, where according to Daniel and according to Revelation, we actually should know the day. And so let's work towards that for a second, okay? In case you guys are confused, um, and David Guzik picks up on this too, you'll see that here in a moment. So I'm trying to pique your curiosity. All right, you guys, you ready? Here we go. So Yeshua says, no one's going to know the day of the hour, not the son, not the angels, but only the father. And then in verse 37, he says, but the, um, says, for the coming of the son of man will be just like, and he's now he's going to give us some analogies is about how planet earth is, what the condition of humanity is going to be like, um, but not just humanity, but we need to know also that he could have been giving us more clues as to go back and read Genesis and find out that wicked humanity was clueless, but righteous humanity, i.e. Noah and his family, they were not clueless. Two groups of, of people group, two, be, two people groups being uh, portrayed when judgment falls, right? Just like in the last day, judgment's going to fall on two groups of people. The wicked are going to be unprepared, just like in Noah's day. But the righteous will be prepared, just like in Noah's day. Well, the same should be true when Yeshua returns the second time. For as in those days, Yeshua says, before the flood, they were, and then he describes the wicked, eating, drinking, marrying, and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. So there's your two groups of people. Um, the people who are eating, drinking, marrying, giving in marriage, they're just going about their daily lives. They don't really know about the disaster. They don't really care. According to the book of Hebrews, Noah preached about it, right? He was preaching. He was a, a preacher of righteousness during that time while he's building the ark. And he was explaining to people what's going on. I'm sure they had dialogues, right? Here he is building this big boat, right? In full view of everyone. It doesn't sound like he went off into some secluded area and built the boat. He built right there in in public in in, in the middle of, of town square, as it were, and people around him were probably asking him, "Hey, old timer, what's with the big boat? You gonna go fishing? What you gonna catch?" Right? And he probably explained to them. Um, even even though he didn't have all the details until a little later on, but you know, he, he I'm sure he warned them of the impending doom, and they just laughed, they scoffed, they mocked him. Yeah, right. Rain. What is that? What is rain, right? I'm of the understanding that there wasn't rain on the earth during that day. You know, the earth was watered by a mist that came up from the ground. So, you know, he warned them. And so that's the people who just said, nah, we're just going to go about our daily lives. We're just going to do everything, do everything according to normal, according to the way we understand life. Um, you know, live, uh, look out for number one and just take care of business as usual. But Noah was the righteous one whom God forewarned, and he was the one that entered the ark. I'm sure there was room for other people. I mean, there were enough room for the animals, but there should have been room for other people if they would have believed, but they didn't. So, those are two groups of people. Yeshua continues and says, and they did not understand, speaking of the wicked humanity, they didn't understand until the flood came and took them all away. And we're going to play with this phrase, 
took them away because later on Yeshua is going to talk about that there will be two in the field and one will be taken and one will be left and then there'll be two at the mill one will be taken and one will be left and if we were to borrow the Luke's account I think it's Luke might be Mark we'll look at here in a moment he also talked about two men being in one bed and one taken and one left and the idea is that there are a good number of of Bible teachers who point to the idea that the taken here refers to the unbelievers and the ones being left refers to the believers believers and then there are people on the other side of the camp that say that the taken refers to the believers and the ones being left refers to the wicked and i'll tell you which view i take here a little later on so yeshua continues to so will be the so will the coming of the son of man be um Oh, okay. So will the coming of the Son of Man be? Um, at that time, there will be two men. And here's our verse here. There'll be two men in the field. Um, literally just two in the field. It doesn't say men, but two in the field. Uh, one will be taken, one will be left. And then two women, verse 41, will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one will be left. So clearly we have this separation of humanity, just like I was mentioning earlier. That's really the main point of this part of the story is... <clears throat> there will be the separation. Um, there will clearly be God marking out who is righteous and who is not, who is ready for judgment and who is to be uh, gathered to him. So we don't have time at this moment, and I'm not going to get into it at this moment, not uh, in detail. I'm going to save that for the raptures uh, talk when we get to the topic. But basically, let's just um, look at the broad picture here again about uh, how was it in the days of Noah, who's taken, who's left. Let's let's uh, entertain that a bit. But first, let me jump over to earlier in Matthew and um, just notice that in Matthew chapter 13, so earlier in the book, Yeshua is talking about this um detail of separating people from people and he gives this analogy this parable of the weeds among wheat and so starting at verse 24 of matthew 13 i'll just read down through some of this uh really quick jesus presented another parable to them saying the kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good feed and field could see in his field but wild men were sleeping the enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and left so now we've got wheat and tares verse 26 of chapter 13 of matthew and when the wheat sprouted that's us the believers when the wheat sprouted and produced grain then the weeds also became evident so that's the the tares and the slaves of the landowner came and said to him sir did you not sow good seeds in your field how then does it have weeds verse 28 yeshua says and he said to them an enemy has done this of course this is satan and he's gonna give the parable uh explanation a little later on. i'm just reading the parable now why i'm reading through it fairly quickly uh verse 28 and he said to them an enemy has done this the slave said to him do you want us to then go and gather them up gather them up so this is a kind of rapture picture that's being um uh described for us verse 29 uh but he said no while you're gathering up the weeds you may uproot the wheat with them verse 30 allow both of them to grow together until the harvest which is the end time rapture and at the time of the harvest i will say to the reapers which we're going to find out are the angels first gather up the weeds and bind them in bundles then uh, to burn them but gather the wheat into my barn now i'm just saying this as um an overview right now but notice that he tells the um reapers which are the angels to first gather the 
um, weeds sequentially and then gather the wheat into my barn. So in this parable, the the um the the bad ones are taken out of the way first and the good is left behind to uh so that it can be gathered into the barn that's the sequence it's it's just right in front of us very plain first gather up the weeds and bind them but gather the wheat into my barn second so if we were to take that chronology then we would see that the wicked are taken for judgment and the righteous are left to be um, protected and gathered and put into the barn. That's the sequence. And just to be sure, um, when we get down to verse 36 and following, Yeshua gives the parable. Then he left the crowds and went to the house, and his disciples came to him and said, Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. Verse 37, he said, The one who sows the good seed is the son of man, and the field is the world, and as for the good seed, they these are the sons of the kingdom, and the weeds are the sons of the evil one. It's really nice when Yeshua just gives us the, the um, details without any ambiguity, without any equivocation. I just love it. I wish he would have done this uh, in other places but he doesn't so here's what we have and then he says in verse 39 the enemy who sowed i'm sorry let me i think i skipped a word and the field is the world and as for the good seed these are the sons of the kingdom and the weeds are the sons of the evil one so we see again these two groups of people just like we saw in the parable with noah or not really not a parable but as the as it was in days of noah and the two out in the field one will be taken one will be left two at the two at the meal one will be taken one will be left etc etc so there's a separation that's what we're talking about which leads us to the proper understanding in the bible that there is no middle ground when it comes to salvation there's no group of people who are in between you might have people who are in decision mode but until they make the decision they are in an area of grace where god is allowing them to be brought close to his truth they attend church they are um, religious jews there are people who have a head knowledge of god there are people who are friends of believers uh, or family members of believers etc etc but they themselves are not believers so they are close to the truth I believe we we could call these people in uh, a room that I have um, come to understand as grace, um, and therefore, if they make the decision that they don't believe in Jesus as Lord, then we, in using Paul's terminology in the book of Galatians, they would fall from grace. That doesn't mean they lose their salvation; rather, they fall out of that area where they can now properly make a a, um, a right decision for God. They they back out. They back off. They back away. Well, we have a lot of people in the world who are like that, but uh, in God's courtroom, they're still unbelievers. So it's you're either on God's side, you're either for God or you're against Him, right? You're either for Jesus or you're against Him at uh, default. So there's no in between. There, there's no people with their feet in both camps where they're half saved and half unsaved. I don't believe the Bible describes that. And these types of parables that we're looking at, I believe, are a good indicator of that truth that there's just two groups of humanity you're either saved or you're lost and at the time of the rapture um yeshua is going to draw he's going to uh snatch away those uh he's going to separate again those who are his from those who are not his but it does get a little more complicated when we get to um say revelation chapter i want to say eight if i remember um where suddenly we've got a group of people that god seals with his seal of righteousness but they're not saved they're just protected from the antichrist namely the 144,000. 
Because in other words, if they were saved, they should have been raptured along with the church group of people that are also in that same chapter, Revelation chapter 8, but they don't get raptured. But we'll talk about that a different day. So, starting in verse 40, so just as the weeds are gathered up and burned with fire, so shall it be at the end of the age. So, notice Yeshua's breaking the parable down and notice the sequence once again. Verse 41, the Son of Man will send forth his angels, right there, the reapers. And they will gather out of his kingdom. Notice the sequence. They will gather out of his kingdom all stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness. Verse 42. And they will throw them into the furnace of fire. In that place there will be reaping and gnashing of teeth. Right? That's verse 41 and 42. That's the wicked being taken first. And then notice in verse 43, he turned on and says, then the righteous will shine forth like the sun in the kingdom of their father, the one who has ears, let him hear. So in this part of the parable, the ones who are taken sequentially first are the wicked, the tares. They're taken in judgment, and then the righteous are left behind to enjoy or inherit the kingdom prepared for them uh, by our righteous father. Yeshua himself also told his disciples, you know, behold, I go and prepare a place for you. And if I go, then I'll return and gather you under myself um, that where I am there, ye may be also. So we know the famous passage in John. So notice that the righteous kingdom is prepared for uh, those who genuinely name the name of Yeshua and believe in God as their God. But it's first that the wicked are kind of taken out of the way there. Uh, removed out of the picture. So that's one perspective. But then as we begin to keep looking at more of these details in Mark, again, we're working our way towards um, working our way towards the, the little commentary that were, that David Guzik prepared for us. Let's look at Mark 13, starting in verse 28. Now learn the parable from the fig tree. As soon as its branches become tender and sprout its leaves, sprouts its leaves, you know that summer is near. So you too, when you see these things happening, recognize that he is near right at the door. Again, he's giving us the general sense of that when the time comes for Yeshua to return, that the urgency of the matter will be uh, felt by those of us who are um, watching and waiting. In fact, he commissions us, so you too, when you see these things happening, recognize that he's right at the door. When he's speaking to believers, he's telling us, look, don't be in the dark, don't be clueless, but watch and wait for my return. Indeed, watch for the signs, right? That was the opening salvo of questions from the disciples very early on in the book of Matthew, chapter 24. When will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age, right? You, oh Lord, tell us when will these things happen? And he could have just told them right up front, guess what? No one knows the day or the hour. You're not even going to have a clue. There won't be any signs. My return will be imminent, right? I don't even know when I'm coming back. Heck, if I don't know, then why should you even care about it? Just go about your daily lives. Don't figure out, don't try to figure anything out. There will be no signs that precede it. It will be imminent. It could happen before you even finish your sentences. So just don't worry about it. Is that what he said? Nope, it's not what he said. Instead, he, he lays out all of these clues, these signs, these things that will precede the um, time frame of the end. Okay, so keeping, keeping with that, he says in verse 29, so you too, when you see these things happening, recognize that he is, doesn't say recognize that he is imminent, it says recognize that he is at the door. The word right there isn't really in the Greek, but it's filled in by this version of the NASB. Recognize that he is near right at the door. 
Verse 30, truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. And then notice there's nothing starting in the next uh, section in Mark about the Noah reference, right? If you look at it, he didn't say anything about as it was in the days of Noah. He just talks about no one knows the day or the hour. But then he does go to talk about the whole thief in the night um, kind of analogy. Um, you know, so, someone, um, uh, re, uh, re, I'm sorry, not the thief in the night part, but the master returning to his house. And in, in another passage, he talks about the, uh, the, the, I think it's Matthew later on, where he talks about uh, the one who breaks in. But notice in verse, starting in verse 33, watch out, stay alert, for you do not know when the appointed time is. It is like a man away on a journey who, upon leaving his house and putting his slaves in charge, assigning to each one his task, also commanded the doorkeeper to stay alert. So, therefore, Yeshua says, stay alert, for you do not know when the master of the house is coming, whether in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows are in the morning. So that he does not, so that he does not come suddenly and find you asleep. What I say to you, to all, what I say to you all, what I say to you, I say to all, stay alert. So, the general sense is that Yeshua is addressing two groups of people: his believers, his followers, his disciples, and by inclusion now us, as we're reading these words. And there are the general humanity who is not going to be reading these words, and yet Yeshua is describing them that they are going to be completely clueless. So even though the world at large does not know and cannot know what is going on because they have rejected the truth, they've rejected God, they rejected the Messiah, they're not reading these words of our Master here. They don't care. On the one hand, we have those people. On the other hand, we have believers who fall into the camp of you can be sharp, you can be alert, you can be ready and watchful and waiting, or you can be slacking off. You're still part of the group who's uh, counted among the Lord's um, followers, but you too can risk the danger of um, letting the cares of the world uh, uh, catch, uh, what do we say, um, uh, garner all your attention and steal away your devotion to God, etc., etc., things like that. So he is warning believers to stay alert. So we still have that aspect. But now let's jump into Luke real quick, and then we'll turn over to um, David Guzik's uh, commentary and work our way through some of that. Starting in Luke 17, all at verse 22, and he said to the disciples, "The days will come when you will long to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it." Verse 23, and they will say to you look there or look here do not leave and do not run after them so i'm backing up a bit to catch the context now we got to start in verse 24 and notice um he's going to start talking about his coming his second return which if it was imminent he wouldn't really give us any signs in other words the signs would be worthless if it was truly 100 imminent but there are just too many details given not just by yeshua but other places in the bible that and I'm not going to deal with this now. I'll deal with it when, it, when I get to rapture uh, in the next three topics. Topics 8, 9, and 10. But, um, I'm sorry, topic... Let me look at my schedule here. Topic 10, 11, and 12. But um, there are just too many details all throughout the New Testament, and even in, in, Mar- in uh, Daniel, that give us the impression that imminency is not really what Yeshua was teaching at least not up to a point at some point in time when all of the signs have been given and all the other portents and um, what do we call them? Um, Harbinger's harbinger harbinger. 
I always get that word pronounced wrong. It's one of the two. Um, when all of these warning signs have been have run their course and Antichrist has been revealed and the tribulation has started up, et cetera, et cetera. At some point in time, yes, his return will be imminent, as will the day will, will be the day of the Lord. But up until that point, no, I don't believe he's teaching imminency, but I do believe he's teaching expectancy and urgency. So that's the view that I'm going to go with. <clears throat> so look here in verse 24. Yeshua says, just like the lightning when it flashes out of one part of the sky and shines to the other part of the sky, so will the Son of the Man be in his day. So will the Son of Man be in his day. In other words, his uh, second coming will not be secret. There will not be a secret rapture. There will be a rapture, but it won't be secret. In fact, uh, in uh, when we get to uh, Paul's writings, we're going to find that um, he's going to announce his arrival with, with a shout, with a loud trumpet blast, uh, the voice of the archangel, etc., etc. That doesn't sound like any secret to me. So Yeshua says, but first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. We're reading in verse 25, and now we're at verse 26. Now we're going to get into the days of Noah um, terminology or uh, verbiage, and so that's why I brought in Luke. So notice we're going to get some more details here uh, that we weren't given in Matthew, particularly when it comes down to the two, uh, the separation between the two people. We're going to get the, the, the two men in the bed uh, ver, uh, terminology. And just as it happened in the days of Noah, so it uh, so will it also be in the days of the Son of Man. Verse 27, people were eating, they were drinking, they were marrying, and they were being given in marriage. And as I mentioned earlier, there's nothing sinful or wicked about the fact that people are eating, drinking, marrying, and giving in marriage, right? There's nothing wrong with that. In fact, those are all good things that the Bible describes for all of humanity to be engaged in, eating, drinking, marrying, and giving in marriage. In fact, how is the human race supposed to continue on uh, unless we marry, give in marriage, and produce children, right? These are all good things to do, but in the context of what you, the way Yeshua is describing humanity at the time frame, at the time period when he returns, this is something that's going to be a bad thing for humanity because it's describing business as usual to the degree that they are not looking and watching and waiting for God to return to planet Earth um, in the uh, in in the person of His Son Yeshua. At the same time, it also describes the general sense of that even though there will be tribulation happening all around planet Earth, that people won't be won't be catching the warning signs about that the end is near. So it's almost strange that people will be eating, drinking, marrying, giving in marriage when, according to the earlier parts of Matthew, with the um, birth pangs or the um, uh, uh, the beginnings of sorrows, as it shows up in other passages, there will be all the, you know, Antichrist will be on the scene, but he won't to be he won't be known yet. He'll be incognito. Um, there will be a measure of peace in certain place, parts of the world, particularly Israel, and um, sacrifices will have been resumed in uh, Israel. But there will also be all of these uh, the the four horses of the apocalypse. You know, the the the, the different colors, the white the red, the black, and the pale, there will be all of these earthquakes and famines and um, uh, uh, shortages of food and uh, things like that that are also going on 
in, on planet Earth. And then the tribulation is going to break out around the midpoint of the week, the abomination of desolation, etc., etc. And yet still, Yeshua says people will be eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. So, you know, it's humanity is just absolutely asleep at the wheel. Even though there's all these signs around them that indicate that something supernatural is happening. There will be demonic activity. There will be supernatural signs in the heavens, right? The sun, moon, stars, um, and earthquakes and things like that. But still, people are just going to be going about their trying to make some sense of normality. So Yeshua says, right up until the day that Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. And um, one thing I want to highlight for you is that when we read the Matthew, here we go, when we read Matthew, in Matthew 24, verse um, 39, it says, let me pull it, highlight it like that for you. In verse uh, 39, it says, And they did not, speaking of the wicked humans, they did not understand until the flood came and did what? Took them all away. And the verb here, took, is repeated down in verse 40 and 41, where it says, At the time there will be two men in the field, one will be taken, and one will be left. And then verse 41, two, men, two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken, and one will be left. And a lot of Bible teachers seize on this opportunity where, with the three verbs, took, taken, and taken. But when we get over to Luke, Yeshua says, they were marrying and being given in marriage until the day that Noah and the dark and the blood came in, destroyed them all. What happened to our verb took? Well, it's not used here in Luke. He uses a different verb, destroyed them all. All right, that's going to play into our little uh, narrative here in a moment. So let's keep reading. Verse 28. It was the same as happened in the days of Lot. We also get some extra details that Matthew didn't record for us, but that as it was in the days of Noah, now we have the days of Lot. And we know the story from the book of Genesis there. But Yeshua gives it to us anyway. They were eating. They were drinking. They were buying. They were selling. They were planting. And they were building. Same general sense as it was with Noah. The idea is that people aren't paying attention to the signs around them. Verse 29. But on the day that Lot left Sodom. Notice Yeshua twice now has emphasized this idea that on the day that destruction befalls humanity that same day uh righteous people are separated away from the wicked people or there's a separation between the two um the day that noah entered the ark he actually even says that but then here in luke he says on the day that lot left and then we're going to see a little bit later he just says he's even going to emphasize it more he's going to say on the same day so he says in verse 29, on the day that Lot left Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. And then verse 30 says, it will be just the same on the day that the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, let's keep reading, we're in verse 31 now of Luke chapter 17. On that day, the one who will be on the housetop with his goods in the house must not go down to take them out. And likewise, the one in the field must not turn back remember lot's wife why because she did turn back and what happened if you remember the story she turned back she turned around and she looked at lot or looked at um sodom and gomorrah as it was being destroyed and she turned into a pillar of salt or uh, a pillar a pillar of like a rock pillar a stone pillar uh in other words she she died 
So remember, Lot's wife. Yeah, don't, don't, don't pull a Lot's wife. Yeshua continues, verse 32, whoever strives to save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life will keep it. That's cryptic, right? But we don't have time to deal with that right now. Verse 34, I tell you on that night, there will be two in one bed. Now we have the two in one bed analogy. One will be taken and the other will be left. Ah, now we're back to our taken and left analogy. Our taken and left language. And he uses the verb taken, just like he had in Matthew. And according to Tim LaHaye and the other author of that book, the Left Behind series, the ones who are taken are the believers, and the ones who are left behind are the unbelievers. That's according to that book series. And there are a lot of pastors who disagree with that based on what we just read earlier in Mark, where the ones who are taken are the ones who are being judged in wickedness, the, like the, the tares were taken and gathered first, and the ones who are left behind are the righteous. Okay, so which one's right? Who's right about that? Let's keep reading. Verse 35, there will be two women grinding at the same place, right at the mill in Matthew. One will be taken and the other will be left. Who's taken? Who's left? Is the wicked one taken in judgment and the one that's left behind is the righteous one? Or is it the opposite? Is the righteous one taken to be with Jesus in rapture and the one left, the one that's left behind to face the judgment that befalls all the rest of wicked humanity. We'll find out here in a moment which view that I take. Starting at verse 36, two men will be in the field. One will be taken and the other will be left. And then verse 37, and responding, they said to him, where, Lord? And notice they ask a question that in Matthew's rendering showed up a lot earlier in the narrative. But in this version from Luke, this question shows up near the very end of his analogy about the taking and the left. So they said to him, where, Lord? And he said to him, said to them, the disciples, where the body is, there also the vultures will be gathered. And I've heard, well, I don't want to get ahead of myself. So um, those are some of the details that we're going to begin now to unpack and begin looking at using um, David Guzik's commentary that I have in front of us. And we're at about 22 minutes left in the study, so we've got plenty of time to back up now and work our way through this. So I'm going to read a lot of this commentary with, without trying to stop and explain a lot of it, since most of it's self-explanatory. So this is found, by the way, at www.enduringword.com, all one word, Enduring Word. I put a little link to Pastor David Guzik's commentary in the descriptions of the YouTube videos that you're watching for this particular series, in case you want to follow along on your own. Pastor David Guzik, I'll flash a little picture on the screen in post-production of what he looks like and um, the name of the website as well. But Pastor David Guzik is a Trinitarian believer. Uh, as far as I understand, when it comes to tribulational perspectives, he's a pre-trib rapture uh, believer, meaning he believes that the tribulation is seven years long, like classic dispensationalists. He believes that the church will be raptured prior to the seven-year tribulation. That's why he's labeled as pre-trib, so pre-trib rapture, um, which I myself do not hold to that perspective. If I were to bring up a... Uh, there we go. If I were to bring up a chart that shows you uh, real quick what kind of perspective. Oh, did I have it? Did I not open the right one? Um, I don't. I don't see it here. But this this one shows this the, the um, 
uh, 70th week of Daniel and the rapture showing uh, right in the middle just prior to the tribulation, but I'm, I'm not holding that. I'm a, um, let's see, is this a pre-wrath chart? Um, this is kind of a, a bit of a pre-wrath chart, uh, but it's not the chart that I was looking for. Um, but nevertheless, pre-wrath places the rapture sometime after the midpoint of the 70th week of Daniel. So um, sometime after the midpoint, about halfway through the second half. So we'll, we'll deal with that a little bit later. But um, so I hold to a pre-wrath uh, that the rapture will take place after the tribulation, but prior to the wrath of God being poured out. Meaning I, I make a distinction between the wrath of Satan, a.k.a the tribulation and the wrath of god aka the day of the lord but we'll deal with that later in the next topic so pastor david guzik is going to talk now about these verses that we just read and i'm going to read down through most of this section without stopping so that we can get it uh onto the recording and into the video and most of it's self-explanatory and i've done a lot of explaining on my own <coughs> sorry about that so um Starting in verse 36, Jesus says that the day and the hour of his return is unknowable by man and even unknowable by angels. And then we have the quote, but of that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. So now notice what Pastor Guzik begins to point out for us. Um, of that day and hour no one knows, here Jesus refers back to the original question of Matthew 24, 3, what will be the sign of your coming? His answer is somewhat unexpected, saying of that day and hour no one knows. And then um, the next section. To give this idea the strongest emphasis, Jesus claimed that this knowledge was reserved for his Father only. If Jesus himself, at least during his earthly ministry, did not know this day and hour, it emphasizes the foolishness of any later person making certain predictions regarding the prophetic timetable. And then notice this part. No one knows. Based on what he told us about the abomination of desolation, we might have expected that the exact day and hour could be known. After all, notice this very carefully what I'm about to show you. After all, Daniel set the day at Jesus' return as being exactly 1290 days after the abomination of desolation in Daniel 12:11. Right? So let me pull up that chart again that you were seeing uh, earlier. So, this is the seven-year period known as Daniel's 70th week, the last seven-year slice of history, as it represents man's final rebellion against God and his final push to try and throw off God's rule. We've got the covenant being made with Antichrist and Israel at the beginning of this time period. I'm looking at the far left of the chart here that you have in front of you, where it says covenant with an arrow pointing down to a star of David. That's the beginning of the 70 a seven-year time slice that many uh, Bible teachers call the tribulation, but I myself do not call the tribulation. So notice on the bookends, we've got the seven-year covenant on the far left, and on the far right, we've got the kingdom in yellow. That's the millennial kingdom being brought into the picture at the end of this um, end of this particular age, the Olam Hazeh. But between those two bookends, we've got, if you look down at the bottom part of the chart in the green, we've got three and a half years, which is 1260 days, and then we've got the midpoint, and then we've got the other half, the three and a half years, which is 1260 days. But if you're following left to right, we've got an additional 30 days after that. 
and an additional 45 days after the 30 days which gives us now these slices of time that we can see in the middle of the chart starting from the midpoint in which antichrist breaks this seven-year peace treaty with israel that's when the abomination of desolation happens that's when the the siege of jerusalem happens that's when the mark of the beast um happens and that's also when according to my understanding when the um two witnesses arrive on planet earth but um at the midpoint we have from that point the 1260 days of the rule of the prince using daniel's language which corresponds with the antichrist that's when he is actually known for who he is he reveals his true identity that's when satan comes down from heaven it's actually kicked out of heaven in revelation chapter 12 and he's thrust down to earth and he realizes he has a short time and he empowers his puppet antichrist and basically we have the uh, unholy incarnation satan incarnate aka uh the antichrist on planet earth that's at the midpoint 1260 days aka uh three and a half years aka 42 months is given to the antichrist to have this intense rule this is the beginning of the tri great tribulation 1290 days is until the destruction of the prince according to daniel which means 30 days after the 1260 days the battle of armageddon should kick in and antichrist is effectively neutralized he's not destroyed yet well he's not destroyed at the 1260 days but he's neutralized for that final 30 days uh but then he awaits his final um uh kind of sentencing and kicked off earth into the lake of fire etc etc destruction by yeshua at the 1290 days but then notice it's 1335 days this is daniel's terminology until the rule of christ meaning until the kingdom is actually established so using this chart and i apologize there should have been another chart uh like i said let me see if there's one that i forgot to bring in mm, i don't see it yet but i'm not going to worry about it too much because it will we'll catch this eventually um what we're going to find oh by the way let me show you the three and a half three and a half years three and a half years occurs five times in the book of revelation if you look at this chart we've got the 42 months mentioned in revelation 11 2 1260 days also in Re revelation but verse 3 1260 days mentioned in revelation 12 6 time times and half a time mentioned in revelation 12 14 and then 42 months mentioned in revelation 13 5 and 7 and um all of these time frames correspond really to the same amount of time three and a half years is 42 months is 1260 days and don't be confused this chart reminds us it's all the same amount of time expressed in different ways three and a half years equals 42 months equals 1260 days equals a time times and half a time and all of them if, if you carefully notice starting with the 42 months at the top of the chart Trample the holy city for 42 months that's the second half according to revelation chapter 11. two witnesses prophesied for 1260 days clothes in sackcloth in revelation 11 as well that's the second half woman flees into the uh, wilderness that's israel where she has a place prepared by god in which she's nourished for 1260 days that's the second half according to my understanding uh revelation 12 14 time times and half a time the woman's given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is nourished for time times and half a time that's the second half of the week and then the last one the beast exercises his authority for 42 months allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them which is language borrowed all the way from daniel 
starting in chapter 2 and then picking up in chapter 7, then finally carried over into chapter 9, 10, 11, and 12 of Daniel. This is describing the Antichrist's career. Again, second half of the week. So most of the um, um, 42 month, uh, 1260 days, um, three and a half year language that's uh, given to us in the Bible is a description of the career of Antichrist as he's known as Antichrist in the second half of the week. Um, in other words, for the first half of the week, he won't be known as Antichrist, and he might not even know that he is Antichrist. He might just think he's just a, some um, a famous world ruler has, who has this immense amount of power, but he might not be. I don't think he'll be Satan incarnate because Satan doesn't come down to earth until the midpoint of the week. So, how, what does that have to do with this uh, one taken and the other left and the days of Noah and um, terminology and things like that. Okay, well, uh, David Guzik talks about how that no one knows based on what Yeshua told his disciples. No one knows the time of his return. Um, and yet, according to Daniel, the exact day of Jesus' return is set as being 1290 days after the abomination of desolation. So let's go back to that chart again. The abomination of desolation takes place at the midpoint of the week. Broken at the midpoint, right there, that little orange arrow pointing right down in the middle of our chart. 1290 days is from the midpoint all the way reading left to right to the end of the 30 days unto the destruction of the prince. In other words, that's when the Antichrist will meet his end. And this means that according to the book of Revelation, he meets his end because Yeshua returns to planet Earth, touches his feet down, splits the amount of olives in half and deals with the Antichrist uh, in this campaign later on known as the um, Battle of Armageddon sometime around then. So, um, I don't know if the splitting the olive, uh, amount of olives in half takes place exactly at that point in time, so I probably shouldn't have mentioned that. But we definitely have the Battle of Armageddon taking place right here near the end at the 1290 days uh, time slot. Right, the three and a half years plus 30 days. This is according to Daniel. So if this is the case, then how could Yeshua say that no one knows the day or the hour? At the very least, he can only say no one knows the hour because Daniel was given the day, right? The day of what? The day of Yeshua's return to planet Earth to deal with Antichrist, to destroy Antichrist's kingdom, to nullify it so that he can usher in his own kingdom 45 days after destroying the Antichrist beast kingdom, which is that beast kingdom which will be on in um, in operation at that particular time. So, going back to Pastor David Guzik's notes here, that's why, and we read this earlier, I think, that's why Guzik says, in this there is a dilemma. How can the day of Yeshua's coming, Jesus' coming, both be completely unknown and at the same time be known to the day according to Daniel 12? Now, he's only saying this is a dilemma. He doesn't actually believe there's a dilemma. He's just um, giving you a little bit of um, teaser. Let's keep reading a little bit down through. We've got about 10 minutes left, and I want to get through as much of this as possible. Verse 37 30 through 39, Jesus says that his coming will be when the world is as was in the days of Noah. So, how can we solve the dilemma? Well, actually, there is a solution that David Guzik's going to offer that I don't completely agree with the verbiage, but I agree with the events that are described, just not the verbiage that's applied to the events. You'll see what I mean here in a moment. And then Guzik quotes the classic, as it was in the days of Noah passage again, which I'm not going to read again since we already read. Let's just jump right back down into his commentary. 
So he says, as the days of Noah were, Jesus explained what he meant by the days of Noah. It means that life centered around the normal things, eating, drinking, marrying, giving, and marriage. In other words, life will be business as usual, reprobate perhaps, but as usual. Notice again that eating, drinking, and marrying, giving, and marriage aren't wrong things, and God isn't necessarily judging humanity for doing those things. Rather, he's judging humanity because ultimately at this stage of the game, Humanity has rejected the gospel, which at this point in time has gone forth around the world. Also, at this point in time, the um, witnesses uh, will be on the scene, also preaching the good news. There will, uh, which could be Elijah and Moses, you know, we're not sure, Moses and Elijah. Um, if we're talking about midpoint and later, there also will be the... Um, the general sense that mankind has given been given this choice of take the mark or resist take the mark and trust in the antichrist or don't take the mark and trust in god one or the other and so humanity is making their choice you remember in romans chapter one paul also describes wicked humanity as um god giving them over to a reprobate mind because they'd reject the truth and therefore uh they are lovers of evil and they're, they're, the, the imaginations of her heart are always, always evil. That's borrowing language from the Genesis account with the flood of Noah. But Paul just explains the same kind of state of humanity in Romans chapter 1. So go back and read that there. Eating and drinking, Guzik says, marrying and giving in marriage. Bruce notes that some charge these with sinister meaning. Eating, hinting at gluttony, because often used to beast, though also in the sense of eating of men, right? Uh, marrying and giving in marriage, euphemistically pointing at sexual licenses on both sides. Yet he comes to the conclusion, quote, the idea rather seems to be that all things went on as usual, as if nothing were going to happen. I'm reading through some of this rather quickly because we've read some of it before, and I'm just rehashing now. We should also remember that the days of Noah were also marked by violence and demonic oppression. Yeah, uh, quite scary. Let's keep reading. Uh, and did not know until the flood came, it took them all away. Those in the days of Noah were warned, and judgment eventually came. To those who had ignored the warnings, it came suddenly and unexpectedly. And then here we go again. Guzik reminds us. Uh, quoting Carson, that the coming of the Son of Man takes place at an unknown time can only be true if, fact, if in fact, life seems to be going on pretty much as usual, just as in the days before the flood. And the point I'm trying to highlight is that when we're talking about people who are not waiting for our Lord to return, then using Paul's language that's going that was already picked up by Yeshua, that's also going to be picked up by Peter in his letter, the fact that Yeshua comes as a thief in the night is mostly true for those who are not even aware that there is going to be a second coming for them to be watching for. There are no signs that they are going to be interested in, and yet there will be signs here on planet Earth, but they're just going to be ignoring them, going on uh, with life as usual. So for them, the thief will come as a uh, the Lord will come as a thief in the night. The day of the Lord will come upon them as a thief in the night. The destruction of the day of the Lord comes as a thief in the night. But Paul says that we are not children of the darkness. We are not children of the night. That that day should overtake us as a thief in the night. We're going to read Thessalonians when we get to the rapture topics later on. I'm just kind of giving you some sneak previews. So, there's these two groups of humanity again that we're working our way towards. Those who are in the dark and who are like... 
those who are just going on going on with um, business as usual and those people will uh, be uh, completely caught off guard and yet those who are of the righteous camp like Noah and his family they are aware that there's the impending doom and so they are not going to be um, caught off guard they might not know the day or the hour but they certainly will know the season and that's kind of where Yeshua is going with the whole analogies of the um, fig tree and that, you know, that summer's near and um, all these types of things. Um, and so we have this that quote again from Guzik that I mentioned earlier. In this, there's a dilemma. How can Jesus come to a business as usual world and a world expecting the worst calamities ever seen on earth? Um, business as usual, right? And yet all hell will be breaking loose, especially with the tribulation raging on. Now let's keep reading. Um, like I said, I'm trying to work through part of this rather quickly because we've already read it before. Well, we've read some of this. Jesus cautions his disciples to be ready for an unexpected coming, starting in verse 40 through 44. And then we've got the verses about the two men taken, two men in the field, one taken, one left. I don't want to read that because we already read it. Let's just jump down into the commentary. Two men will be in the field, one will be taken, one will be left. Notice, now Guzik's going to share his perspective, I believe, of who is the taken and who's the left. Jesus here points to curious disappearances to a catching away of some at the coming of the Son of Man, as also described in 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17. Taken in this verse is the verb, same verb used in uh, Matthew 1, 20, 17, 1, 18, 16, and 20, 17. You ready for this? It implies to take someone to be with you and therefore here points to the salvation rather than the destruction of the one taken. That's a quote from France. So according to Guzik, quoting France, those who are taken are those who are taken in rescue, those who are taken in rapture, those who are taken in deliverance, and the ones who are left behind are those who are left in judgment. That's the view that France is offering, and that's the view I believe Guzik is also offering here. Let's keep reading. I don't want to uh, tip my hand all the way just yet. Guzik continues, watch therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. Since the day and hour of his coming are unknowable, Jesus' followers must be on constant guard for his coming. Here again is the second coming dilemma, right? Look at these bullet points. Bullet point number one of three. It is at an unexpected. Is it at an unexpected hour, or is it positively predicted? Look at that chart one more time. Is the second coming during the rapture, sometime earlier than the uh, outside of the seven-year period, pre-tribulation? I.e., if this whole seven years is the tribulation, does he come at the far extreme left of the screen, sometime before the covenant with Antichrist is signed? Therefore, it's completely unexpected and unknown. Is that what the second coming is? Or is it at the far right of this chart where the kingdom is being represented as being established by Jesus at the end of the 70 weeks of Daniel, at the end of the 1260 days, at the end of the 1290 days with the destruction of the Antichrist when he um, returns to defeat Antichrist? Is that when the second coming is? Because really, if it's at the far left, then it's unknowable. But if it's at the far right, then it's knowable down to the day. Are you seeing the dilemma there? Is it an unexpected hour or is it positively predicted? Bullet point number two of three. 
Is it business as usual or worldwide cataclysm? Right. Remember, at this time, there will be all kinds of wars and rumors of wars and famines and plagues and disasters and earthquakes. And the, the tribulation will be raging on either for three and a half years or seven years, depending on which uh, definition of tribulation you take. Antichrist will be on the scene. There'll be the mark of the beast. There'll be demonic activity. And yet there's business as usual. Or is it worldwide cataclysm, right? Notice the, the contrasts that are going on that Guzik is highlighting for us. And the bullet point number three of three is the coming of Yeshua signal with meeting him in the air, according to 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17. Or is he coming with the saints, according to Zechariah 14, 15. And what we're going to find, and um, I'm now to the point where I may as well just start revealing of uh, some of the answers to the seeming ambiguity or dilemma that Guzik was um, describing. Barclay, this is a quote from Guzik quoting Barclay. Barclay describes one aspect of the difficulty here. Quote, it is in two sections, speaking of the coming of Yeshua, it's in two sections and they seem to contradict each other. The first verses of 32 to 35 of Matthew seem to indicate that as a man can tell by the signs of nature when summer is on the way, so he can tell by the signs of the world when the second coming is on the way. But the second coming, the second section, verses 36 through 41, says quite definitely that no, mo- no one knows the time of the second coming, not the angels, nor even Jesus himself, but only God, and that it will come upon men with the suddenness of a rainstorm out of a blue sky. And guess what? I'm going to be really cruel to you guys. I'm going to leave you with a cliffhanger. I'm not going to tell you what Guzik has to say. Unless you want to click on his commentary in my description in the video below and read on your own. I'm not going to tell you exactly how he solves the dilemma. But he does have a solution. And I'm kind of hinting at it when I keep showing you this chart. Um, here, I kind of actually even peeked at it just there a moment ago if you were watching very carefully. I'm hinting at it when I'm talking about the two sides of it but i'm not going to tell you exactly what it is since i'm right at the uh one hour mark we'll pick this up next week where we will turn headlong into this idea of um two men will be in the field one will be taken one will be left who's the taken who's the left um how is it that yeshua's return can be unknowable right no one knows the day of the hour and yet according to daniel the day is known right it's been given to us 1290 days when yeshua will return after the midpoint of the week after the midpoint of of the abomination of desolation etc etc how can we resolve these seemingly contradictions business as usual and yet at the same time all hell is breaking loose we'll pick that up again next week but that'll do it for eschatology a biblical study of end time events these are the live internet studies brought to you week after week by myself Ariel Ben Lyman Hanavi, I'm a torture at Congregation K. Latunavada Harvest in uh, Thornton, Colorado. Find us online at grafting.com and join us in, in person for our live Sabbath services. But if you're not able to join us, at least as I mentioned, join us online and um, you can see the link to the video right there on my screen as well. These uh, live internet studies are a part of my own um, Torah teaching ministry, which parks itself on the web at tetzetorah.com. That's T-E-T-Z-E-T-O-R-A-H.com. I'd love to have you join me at my own home uh, personal website there and uh, browse around and take a look through all the uh, commentaries that you see on my screen right now as well. I also have a YouTube channel that I'd be delighted if you uh, popped in and um, took a look around there as well. YouTube.com forward slash C forward slash Torah 
Ministries. If you do hit my website, uh, my YouTube channel there, be sure to uh, take notice that I update the uh, site essentially daily, uploading videos daily. Make sure then to subscribe, hit the bell for notifications, leave thumbs up for all the videos that you like. Um, leave me some comments and questions about things you have um, uh, your own thoughts on. And be sure to share the content with your other friends and family members in your social media circles, okay? Just some brief important uh, details. If you'd like to join us for our live studies, be sure to get access to Skype somehow. If you're on my website right now, um, uh, during the live study and you click on that blue Skype link, it'll actually open up Skype in your browser and you can just join us right there. And we hope you can join us live because we engage in a live Q&A after the study is over, opening up the microphones and it's exclusively to the um, uh, live studies um, uh, that we uh, enjoy engage in that live study uh, Q&A. But if not, um, take one last moment to scroll to the very bottom of my website where you can see some Hebrew writing and the black section down there and uh, prayerfully consider partnering with me to take the Torah around the world uh, in this particular format. You can click on the little yellow donate button and um, bless me that way with your uh, financial gifts and contributions and I'm so uh, blessed to be able to be in a place where I can receive uh, your generous gifts. Uh, thank you to all of those who have given in the past and are continuing to give. I'm so uh, thrilled to be on the receiving end of of your generosity and as i always say be blessed as you seek to be a blessing to others let's turn to a trinitarian response to biblical unitarianism my name is ariel ben lyman hana v this is the final 30 minute half of our two segment live internet study the first one hour of the uh, live hours, live uh, hour and a half study was given over to a Trinitarian response to biblical. I'm sorry, given over to eschatology, biblical study of end time events, and the second half is given over to the Trinitarian study known as a Trinitarian response to biblical Unitarianism. My name is Ariban Lyman Hanavi. Uh, welcome everyone to this brand new year, 2024. I'm glad everyone has um, joined me for this brand new year's worth of studies. Let's jump right into our study. We're looking at this passage in Proverbs 8:23 which according to the NIV version from biblicalunitarian.com, a website about God and His Son, Jesus Christ, they are a non-Trinitarian Christian denomination. The verse reads, I, wisdom, was appointed from eternity, from the beginning before the world began. And as we've read in their um, explanation, wisdom here is not Jesus. Instead, wisdom is merely a personification of God's wisdom, and therefore we're not talking about Jesus who existed alongside God from eternity, or we're not even talking about Jesus who was created by God before the worlds were created, like the Job's Witnesses believe. Instead, Biblical Unitarian rejects both of those views. They simply say that this is personification, nothing more, nothing less. It, it's uh, a common um, type of genre among uh, Jews where um, one aspect of God or quality of God is personified in uh, the Bible, and so this is nothing different. So that's their perspective. You can read about their perspective in uh, from their website at biblicalunitarian.com. Let's look at the verse one more time before we jump into it uh, on on um, for my study. Backing up to verse 22, the Lord possessed me at the beginning of his way before the works, his works of old. This is Lady Wisdom speaking to us. We say Lady because wisdom in the hebrew bible the hebrew word is chokmah looks like chokmah c-h-o-k-m-a-h in the english transliteration but it's chokmah and the grammar of this word is 
it's uh, feminine. It's a feminine word. So that's why wisdom is referred to as a woman in these particular passages. She's even called um, sister in the previous chapter, chapter 7. Uh, verse 22 has God, um, or has the psalmist, I'm sorry, the proverbist, I'm making up a word there, I believe. I don't think it's, I don't think that's a real word, but we've had, we've heard of Proverbs. We've heard of Proverbs and Psalms, and we've heard of the psalmist, so why not the proverbist, right? Adonai kanani rishit darko kedem mifa mif alive meat the lord possessed me and this word uh kanani is the english word uh possessed and so um we're examining some of the hebrew behind uh this particular passage from 22 23 24 and 25 23 says from everlasting i was established from the beginning from the earliest times of the earth and the everlasting part, meolam um, nisachti, from everlasting I was established. Merosh, from the beginning, me kadme aretz, I was um, uh, from the in, from the earliest times of the earth. So the establishing uh, verb being used here is kind of parallel to the. Um, possessed word earlier up in verse 22 and then in 24 and 25 he uses a word here that he uses twice where there were no depths i was brought forth and the hebrew over here would be um hololti um before the uh depths were i was brought forth um when there were no depths and then he repeats himself using the same verb before the mountains were settled before the hills i was brought forth again the same uh, verb down here if i were to highlight it for you it's right oh i'm gonna run into trouble there give me a second it's right ah oh, i'm running into trouble again let me try one more time Nope, can't get it because of this little feature right there, that little part, the little uh, half circle there. If I click that, it'll make the verse go. But it's this word right there um, that you can see, cholalti, it's the final word in Hebrew. Okay, so that's the word uh, brought forth. So brought forth, it shows up twice, 24 and 25. Established shows up in 23, and then possessed shows up in 22. And last week, we looked at this idea uh, that... These words are used in poetic fashion to describe the relationship of wisdom with God. And so eventually we'll get into the Greek. Um, I'm not going to turn to it right now, just to just to make you aware of the fact that the Greek, well, I suppose at least I'll get this verse. The Greek uses a word in verse 22. He established me before the time was in the beginning. Kurios ektisen me arke hadon autu ace erga autu. This Greek word right here on your screen, ektisen. We're going to find out that this word, if I were to click on it, is this word rooted in the verb katizo, which can mean to found or build a city, to found or establish, to create, make, or fabricate, to bring into being, to perpetuate, um, to perpetrate. And so this word is used in the Greek uh, Bible in the Septuagint, as well as in the New Testament here, we're going to see, it absolutely can be used to to um, to uh, indicate create, as in creation. So, he established me before the time was in the beginning, but some versions read, he created me before time was in the beginning. It's, in fact, the Jehovah's Witnesses who pick up on this aspect of creation and say, here it is, 
without a doubt, this is Jesus being created by God. And if we turn to this word in the Apostolic Scriptures, um, using a different tool, you can see on your screen, this is uh, blueletterbible.com. This same word is, shows up in Mark 13, 19. For is, this is, we, we, we read this verse in our, our previous study about the eschatology. For in those days shall be affliction such as was not from the beginning of the creation which God created. Strong's number 2936 is that word katizo. God created until this time, neither shall be. What did God create in Mark 13, 19? The world. Look at Romans um, uh, 1, 25. Who changed the truth of God into a lie and worshipped and served the creature more than the creator. Strong's 29, 36. Who is blessed forever and ever. It's a form of the word katizo. The creator is God and he's and the creation is the thing he created and the creator, uh, the created is the action that he used. Um, look at the uh, next one. 1 Corinthians 11, 9. Neither was the man created for the woman, but the woman for the man. We have again a form of the word katizo used twice here. Strong's number uh, 2936. Uh, again, God is the one doing the creation. Ephesians 2.10, for we are his workmanship created, Strong's 29.36, in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Again, God created us in Christ. Uh, Ephesians 2.15. There we go. Having established, having abolished in flesh the enemy, even in the law of commandments, contained in ordinances, for to make in himself of twain one new man, so making peace. Uh, a form of the word katizo again, having, and here it's just rendered made or make. Uh, let's keep going real quick through some of these. Ephesians 3 9. And to make all men, notice the word make there isn't the form of the word, uh, to make all men see what is the fellowship of the mystery which from the beginning of the world hath been hidden God who, what? Created all things by Christ Jesus, by Jesus Christ, a form of our word that we're picking on right here. Ephesians 4, 24, and that ye put on the new man which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. Uh, how many more of these do I want to read? Oh, we're almost done. Um, there we go. This one, for by him were all things created. Our word is used twice in Colossians 1.16. Uh, speaking of in heaven and earth, invisible and in, invisible, whether it be thrones or dominions and principles or powers, all things were created by him and for him. Who is it speaking of in, for, in Colossians? Paul is talking about Jesus. Jesus is the one that was by him and for him and through him, right? Created by him and for him. All things were created. Through him is in the uh, John passages. So, um, Jesus is given creative uh, uh, recognition here by Paul, and the word created is the form of the word that we're picking on, katizo. Which, by the way, if Jesus created all things, then how could he be created? How could, um, if, create, if Jesus created all things, then... How could Jesus have created himself? If all things were created by Jesus, and yet he is a created thing, how could he himself have created all things, right? Um, it messes with your head there because it can't be. Uh, Colossians 3.10, in other words, Jesus is not a creature. He is the creator. Uh, Colossians 3.10, and, and have put on the new man which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him. Again, speaking of the creator. Um, 
1 Timothy 4, 3, forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from meats which God hath created to be received with thanksgiving of them which believe and know the truth. Again, God is the creator there, using our word katizo. Uh, Almost done. Revelation 4, 11, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for thou hast what? Created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. Again, God is creator. Jesus is creator. Therefore, Jesus must be God because even in Revelation here, all things were created for you, Lord, and um, uh, for, uh, what does it say? All uh, Thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. So, if everything in Revelation was created for God, but according to Colossians, what we read earlier, everything was created for Jesus, then Jesus must be God according to the Bible. You understanding how the logic there is? In fact, if you go back up to um, the Colossians passage, Paul says, for by him all things were created that are in heaven and are on earth, visible and invisible, whether it be thrones, dominions, principalities, or powers. All things were created by him. Are you ready for this? And for him. They were created by Jesus and for Jesus in Colossians 1 16. But in Revelation, he says, For thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. So. Jesus must be God. And then the last one in Revelation 10, 6, And swear by him that lived forever and ever, who did what? Created heaven and the things that are therein, and the earth and all the things that are therein, and the sea and all the things which are therein, that there should be no time longer. So this is just to show you that this verb, katizo, um, Strong's number uh, 2936, can be rendered create. And yet when we go back to um, Proverbs 822 in the English, he established me, but it's read as created me in some versions. In fact, let me click on uh, verse 22 and show you some of the different versions. In IV, the Lord brought me forth. In LT, the Lord formed me. ESV, the Lord possessed me. Brian Standard, the Lord created me. King James, the Lord possessed me. KJV, New KJV, the Lord possessed. NASB, the Lord created me. NASB 95, the Lord possessed me. 97, the Lord possessed me. Legacy Standard, Yahweh possessed me. Amplified Bible, the Lord created and possessed me. Christian Standard, Lord acquired me. Holman Christian Standard, Lord made me. American Standard Version, Jehovah possessed me. Aramaic Bible in plain English, Lord Jehovah created me. Brenton Septuagint, the Lord made me. Contemporary English, from the beginning I was with the Lord. Dewey Rames, the Lord possessed me. E-R-V, the Lord possessed me, which um, is one of the versions. Nope, not that's not the one I'm talking about. Uh, God's Word translation, the Lord already possessed me. Good news, the Lord created me. International Standard, the Lord made me. JPS Tanakh, the Lord made me. Literal Standard, Yahweh possessed me. Major stand, Majority Standard, the Lord created me. NAS, I'm sorry, NAB, the Lord begot me. That's an interesting one. In that Bible, the Lord created me. New Revised Standard, the Lord created me. New Heart English, the Lord created me. The Webster's Bible translation, the Lord possessed me. World English Bible, Yahweh possessed me. Young's Literal Translation, Jehovah's possessed me. And there are other translations that I'm not going to show you here. What's the point? That this word um, that we're looking at, Katizo, has a variety of ways to be translated. Sorry, there were a variety of ways to be translated. Uh, Yahweh Kanani, Kanani in the Greek, I'm sorry, in the Hebrew, but in the Greek, Kurios Ektisen me arke hadon autu es arke autu. Ektisen is a form of the word katizo. 
like we just saw right there. So let's look at this. Um, let's look at this um, uh, uh, verse uh, through the lens of my own commentary, which is obviously Trinitarian leaning. Remember, Jehovah's Witnesses say that God created Jesus, and then Jesus was used to create the rest of the creation. But they they put themselves into a dilemma because. As we're working our way through the logic of this uh, passage in the book of Proverbs, let me park out right there. No, we'll park out right there and zoom it out so you can see that part. Um, If wisdom is something that God had to create in order for him to then use to create the rest of the world, then it means that God was absent of creation he was i'm sorry he was absent of wisdom he was he was missing wisdom until he created it this means that god changed somehow he's not immutable anymore and that he's not all wise meaning wisdom was something that he lacked at some point in time which can't be accurate either so is wisdom jesus the job's witnesses say yes wisdom is jesus and this is proof that he was created but they, they run into two problems one if wisdom is jesus and wisdom was created then wisdom is something that god lacked at some point in time and therefore he's not all wise and all powerful number two wisdom is spoken of as a sister or a woman in the book of proverbs and if Jesus is a woman, then we've got another big problem. So if we look at this chart here, um, that I, it's a screen grab from a YouTube video I was watching earlier this week from a, from a Trinitarian author, you have the Jehovah's Witnesses um, faced with this question, okay, so do you believe that Jehovah lacked wisdom at some point then, right? A Christian trinitarian questioning a jehovah's witness and if the jehovah's witness says yes i do believe that jehovah lacked wisdom at some point in time the jehovah's witnesses answers that question with a yes then the the, the trinitarian will say well, so god isn't all wise right then, then the jehovah's witness is in a dilemma right he just described god as not having all wisdom well then if the jehovah's witness says no um i don't believe that jehovah lacked wisdom at some point in time then so jesus is eternal right so if jesus is the wisdom spoken about in this passage then if god didn't create him meaning god had wisdom from all eternity then jesus is eternal right so the jehovah's witness is in a pickle either way where they say yes or no to the question that's posed here and then we might take it a step further according to this um, youtuber he says so the personification in proverbs 8 23 and 30 is jesus right according to um the biblical unitarians and according to Job's witnesses and according to some um trinitarians personification is what's going on but if you look at the whole slew of verses which we don't have time to look at right now but someday we will doesn't um but all of these other verses in the bible doesn't make the holy doesn't make the holy spirit a person as well that's kind of the um challenge put forth by this trinitarian uh youtuber as you can see his face there um i'll maybe i'll put a link to this in the descriptions of the video so you can go back and watch the video you're on your own it's not, it's not very long it's like i think 12 minutes long or whatever very short um to the point it's really targeting jehovah's witnesses but the same theology could be used against the um, biblical unitarians that we're doing in my own study right now it's that what the bible does is it gives us this idea that wisdom 
is personified in the book of Proverbs, yes. And when we get to the Apostolic Scriptures, New Testament, wisdom is equated with Jesus, yes. But at the same time, we don't have to take it so far as to say that wisdom was created by God as if he lacked some attribute from the beginning that he had to create, right? That doesn't quite work with either theology. In other words, even the Biblical Unitarians reject that model. In other words, they reject the Arian model, that uh, wisdom had to be created by God in that aspect. They simply back down and say it's a personification. And yes, we do believe that. But at the same time, Jesus is wisdom personified, and yet Jesus is uncreated. So, the final analysis that we're going to find out, and I'm kind of tipping my hand a, a little ahead of time, is that Ultimately, we can say that Jesus is both personified as wisdom in the book of Proverbs, as well as he is very he is the very wisdom of God, yet uncreated, because wisdom is something that God has always possessed, an attribute that God never lacked. So it's both sides. In other words, either Trinitarian uh, argument is really the best one that uh, is in perfect harmony and agreement with the totality of Scripture, both Old and New Testament. So let's jump back into my own uh, commentary and pick up where we kind of left off. We are now ready to tar- start talking about wisdom, the wisdom of Proverbs and the Logos of John. So let me take these last 10 minutes and just more or less read almost without stopping because I want to get through this part of my commentary. It was never really meant to be this long. It just ended up being that way because I'm long-winded. And yes, I, I admit I am long-winded. So let's read through this part. And I think it's self-explanatory if I will just stop um, stopping and uh, interjecting. So we're working our way towards... Um, the book of John, chapter 1, which I do have to at least show you this part, right? John 1.1, 1, 1, in case those of you who aren't in the know. Um, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. This is NASB, but it's, it reads almost identical in almost every version. And we've got the Greek reproduced, which many of us have memorized. In arche en halagos, kai halagos, en prostantheon, kai thaos en halagos. And... Um, this word which was in the beginning, which, which was with God and which was God, and in verse 2, again stated that he was in the beginning with God. Verse 3 says, all things came into being through him, and apart from him nothing came into being that has come into being. So, we've got a little bit of agency language going on, that God used this word to create all of the rest of the known universe, and yet at the same time, John says that this word was with God and was was God, meaning he was fully deity, he was fully divine. I may as well read verse 2 and 3 in the Greek as well, since I read verse 1. Hutos in... Hutos... In Arche Prostantheon, verse 2. And then verse 3 says, Panta di autu, egenato kai chorus autu, egenato ude in hen ha gegonen. And that'll be um, just those uh, brief passages in Greek from John. All right, let's turn over to my commentary and read down through some of this. And I'll try to read without stopping. Okay, you ready? Here we go. Uh, this is not available, by the way, anywhere online. I did that on by design. It's so that you would be um, in uh, invited and um, um, uh, encouraged to uh, follow the YouTube vi- teaching here, which is the only place where you're going to find this little essay that I put together sometime earlier last year. 
Proverbs 8.23 is a verse that has been the subject of much debate and discussion in the history of theology. These are my own words. While there are different interpretations of this verse, the Trinitarian understanding of Proverbs 8.23 has been the dominant view among Orthodox Christians. Again, these are my own perspectives as an Orthodox Trinitarian believer. I go on to say that in this second half of my essay, we will examine the excuse me, the strengths of the Trinitarian understanding and the weaknesses of the Unitarian understanding of Proverbs 8.23, as seen through the lens of its parallels to the Logos of John, with a special emphasis on both the original Hebrew of Proverbs as well as its translation into Greek into uh, in the Septuagint. So we're going to work our way towards the Greek in the Septuagint, which is why I'm not kind of reading a lot of it right now. Let's keep going. The verse as rendered from the NASB reads, quote, From eternity I was established from the beginning, from the earliest times of the earth, end quote. Now I go on to say that there's really no reason why the verse could not be translated somewhat woodenly as, quote, from eternity I was poured out from the beginning, from the earliest times of the earth. Notice I use the verb now, poured out. The REV Bible, which is a translation favored by www.biblicalunitarian.com, translates the verse as, From antiquity I was woven together from the start from the earlier times of the earth. Um, and then I go on to say that comparatively, this verse is translated as follows in the ESV, which we quoted from um, in a, uh, the uh, Biblical Unitarian, I believe, maybe earlier. I was set up from everlasting, or maybe it was NIV, right? I was set up from everlasting from the beginning before the earth was. So we're looking at this verb, and we're basically trying to ascertain, along with verse 22, 23, 24, 25, some verbs are used. There's about three verbs in those four verses. What is the poetry being conveyed to us? Why is it that a variety of verbs are used and which ones are the best ones for us to um, walk away with? Let's talk about some parallels with John's Logos, right? We're going to look, into, look at some of the Hebrew as well. Proverbs 8.23, when examined through a Trinitarian lens, offers intriguing parallels to the personhood of wisdom as depicted in the Gospel of John. These are my own notes again, particularly in John 1, 1 through 18. And I already read the first few verses of John 1 for you. The original Hebrew rendering of Proverbs 8.23 states this, and I read this earlier, but I'll read it again. Me'olam nisachti me'rosh mikadme aretz. Now, let's pick on this word, um, nisachti, which is the, um, uh, the word translated set up in the, many of the English translations. All right, so these are my own words again. The Hebrew term nasachti used in Proverbs 8.23 and most often rendered as formed, appointed, or established, um, installed, quite literally means poured out or set up. It's used metaphorically to describe the establishment of wisdom by God before the creation of the world. The word nasach, right, which is the root word um, of nasachti, is also used in other places in the Old Testament to refer to the pouring out of a drink offering or the setting up of a memorial. So remember, in verse 22, we have a word that could be just translated as 
brought forth in one version or created if we're using the greek especially if we look at the new testament where that same word is used to describe god as creating the world so we've got some strong ties to creation there you know that verb but at the same time being brought forth is tied back to uh, the psalm passage i mentioned very earlier in my study psalm 2 verse 7 i believe where the um, God speaking about his um, firstborn, right? You are my um, firstborn today. I have begotten thee. That word begotten in the, in the Hebrew and the Greek is this idea of birthing language. This idea of beginning is God giving birth or the father giving birth to the son metaphorically. Well, this is tied into the poetry of the passage as it shows up and the words that are used in the book of um, Proverbs here. Remember, this all belongs to um, poetic genre. So we, we, we need to allow the force of differing words being brought into the discussion to have their say. And we can't really make our decision based on one word. We don't want to cherry pick. At the end, we want to make sure that we're um, drawing from the um, wide gamut that's portrayed by the words before we make our final decision by the variety of words. I go on to say that in Proverbs 8.22, the word nasak emphasizes the divine origin of wisdom, which was poured out or set up by God before the creation of the world. Remember, in the biblical worldview, in the Hebraic mindset, there are two kind of chambers that are separated by a vertical line that I'm going to draw for you in your mind, but it's going to show up in screen and post-production. This vertical line is baby blue on my in my little graphics that's going to show up. And it separates these two realities or chambers or um, spheres of existence. On the left side, we have the sphere of creator, and under that label creator in all bold letters on the left side of the chart that you're going to see in post-production, we have God, um, God is creator, we have the Father, we have the Son, we have the Holy Spirit. And they're all God, they're all creator, and they rightfully belong on this left side because they belong to a, a sphere known as eternity. A, a sphere that is outside of and wholly um, preceding everything else that is on the other side, which is creation or which represents everything else. And so in the biblical worldview, there's created and there's creator. There's the creature on one side and there's a creator on the other side. There's God and eternity on one side and there's everything else on the other side, which is finite. There's infinite and there's finite. There's eternity and there's um, non-eternity, right? right? Um, so that's why we can place Nasak and... Um, wisdom on the god side because uh, um using other passages that give us uh, fill out the rest of the picture then we can see that the word was described in john as being with god as well as being fully deity full deity fully divine uh, fully with god all that god was the word was if we translate the the greek kind of rather woodenly um let's keep reading down through my commentary didn't mean to do that we've got about uh, maybe a minute left, and let me see. Can I finish uh, this? Wow, there's no way I can finish this. Uh, but um, we'll keep reading. We can finish at least one more paragraph. I go on to say that the meaning of the word nasak has been a topic of debate, right? Rightfully so, among scholars. Some scholars argue that the word should be um, translated as, quote, created, end quote, rather than poured out. 
quote unquote, or set up quote unquote. And this interpretation emphasizes when we're talking about created, it emphasizes the idea that wisdom was created by God before the creation of the world, right? We're talking about more along the lines of the Arian slash Jehovah's Witnesses perspective about wisdom being something that God lacked, but he had to create. And yet they're in a dilemma, like we looked at earlier, because God cannot be all wise and um self-sufficient and immutable if he had to create a major aspect of his personhood right wisdom right uh other scholars are going to say argue that the word should so we're talking about nisach nasach should be translated as possess quote-unquote rather than poured out quote-unquote or set up this interpretation emphasizes the idea that wisdom is a possession of god rather than a separate entity Okay, so we're looking at some of the nuances of this word that in the end we're talking about a poetic form of describing God creating the world using a tool or an agent that's described and called wisdom that in the end is feminine, right? A sister in the earlier passage or a woman uh, in this uh, passage in question. Let me read at least one more here. I go on to say that despite the differences in interpretation, the word nasach emphasizes the divine origin of wisdom, which was established by God before the creation of the world. So what I do is, whether no matter if you're going to say it was something created by God, which I don't think is exactly the best way, but or you're going to say poured out because that has its roots in the drink offerings that we looked at earlier, right? That's a rendering of the word nasach, and it's just describing the action that that is um, initiated when God uses this tool of wisdom to result in what we would now call the creation. Thus, nasach in that aspect of of being the tool that God uses to be to pour out creation whether he created the tool prior to creation or whether the tool was already in his possession which I vote for I go for the fact that it's an eternal tool an eternal aspect that God had meaning God has always been all wise God has never lacked wisdom I go with that aspect. In other words, if I had to take the side of the Socinian slash Jehovah's Witnesses, I'm sorry, the Arian slash Jehovah's Witnesses, or the um, Socinian slash uh, Unitarian positions, I would go with the unit, Biblical Unitarians in this regard to say that wisdom was not created by God like the Jehovah's Witnesses would have to say. Um, wisdom is eternal. And uh, that, that, that's the, the aspect or the nuance of this word that I'm going with. Uh, it's, it emphasizes the eternal aspect because wisdom was there prior to the creation. And in the biblical worldview, creation is on one, it's one category in and of itself. You can't have a three categories where one category is eternal, that's God. A second category is creation, that's everything else. And yet there's this middle category, which is partly outside of creation creation but partly outside of eternity kind of stuck in the middle there all right although yeshua is quite unique and we could probably fit him in there if we wanted to to say that he's fully god and fully man truly god truly man quite unique in all of creation um when it turn when it comes to the incarnation this emphasizes i go on to say the eternal and divine nature of wisdom which existed when before the creation of the world. So I'm going to keep repeating that. The word nasach is consistent with the Trinitarian understanding of Proverbs 8.23, which, are you ready for it? Just one view, which views the wisdom of God mentioned in this verse as referring to the second person of the Trinity, which is the Son.
So this is one perspective we're working our way towards. It's not the only Trinitarian perspective, but I go on to say in closing in this part, and then we'll close the commentary down tonight. According to this view, the Son is begotten from eternity by the Father. Remember our Psalm 2 verse 7 passage. He's begotten from eternity by the Father and is therefore co-eternal and co-equal with the Father. He is not a created being. He is co-equal. He exists alongside the Father in eternity past and yet as the son as the person of god as the person of the son consubstantial with god the same substance that god is is made up of if we want to call it that therefore there's no reason to downgrade his status to that of creature like the arian slash jehovah's witnesses do nor to downgrade his status as mere human like the uh, biblical unitarians slash socinians do no we elevate him to full god status full divinity like john does in john 1 1 1 john 1 1 1 john 1 1 in the beginning was the word the word was with god and the word was god and that'll do it for a trinitarian response to biblical unitarianism let's close in prayer i'll bless your name and what a awesome time that we live in as we are we are counting off and turning the calendar over to a brand new year 2024 we're just one more year closer to the return of our lord yeshua and Lord, I pray that you will give us the, um, give us the, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? The endurance to, to stay the course, to not give up, to, um, stay strong, to stay committed to you until the finish, until you return to, uh, rescue us and to gather us to be with you. Thank you, Lord, that you are going to come and establish your kingdom of righteousness here on planet Earth. And then, uh, like the Tanakh says of old, in that day, your name will be, the Lord will be one and your name will be one. Like we say in our, um, in our uh, prayers that we read in, in the synagogue, by Yom Hahu Adonai Echad Ushmo Echad. The Lord will be one. His name will be one. He will be one. There will no more be this divided, um, uh, questions of is 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 there are there more than one god is god more than one that will be solved lord because you will be here in bodily form to explain to us um all these questions of trinity and uh, your your kingdom will be here and we'll be able to worship you in righteousness and truth so thank you lord that that time is soon approaching help us to continue to look forward uh look for the blessed hope your blessed return continue to raise us up and to to give us a voice of witness uh to those in the world who do not yet know you um give us holy boldness as we witness um preparing the way help us to um look for divine um uh, what we might call calling cards, um, uh, doors opening so that we can uh, give, the, give the gospel and uh, share our testimony with those around us. Um, continue to carry us along and raise us up, and we'll be careful to give you the praise and the glory of Yeshua. Amen. 